I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. The South Dakota Catholic Conference represents the bishops of South Dakota on matters of public policy, providing explanations of how church teaching applies to the issues of our day. On this podcast, we range from the soul to the state as we try to cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. And today we're going to talk about a saint. You know, we, um, I like to say we're, uh, this, this podcast, we're going to talk about how to live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Uh, we could say that this saint is going to help us think about how to, to live as, as leading citizens in this great land. Uh, we're going to talk about Thomas More. We are now in our third week of broadcasting on Real Presence Radio every Tuesday night at 8 Central, 7 Mountain Time. Of course, continuing with all of our podcast listeners, wherever they may be across the globe, um, you know, two, two weeks back, was really excited to launch on the radio with the, the new bishop of the Diocese of Sioux Falls, Bishop Donald DeGroot, installed, ordained this last, um, this last February. And then last week, got to talk a little bit about, uh, about who we're going to talk about today, St. Thomas More, because we discussed religious freedom with Father Mike Molloy, the diocesan administrator of the Diocese of Rapid City. My guest today is one of the foremost uh, experts, if I may say, in the world. Professor Gerard Wegemer teaches at the University of Dallas. Uh, I, I just have to say that this is, this is the first time um, we've had occasion really to, to speak, but I've, I was introduced to his work as a, as a law student um, at the University of St. Thomas. I had occasion to, to kind of uh, jump into a different department and took a graduate level course in the Catholic Studies Department from uh, Dr. John Boyle on Thomas More, it was a course that wasn't offered uh, every every semester or every year. It was kind of infrequent, so I counted myself really lucky, and I just gained a great, great friend in Thomas. And so, with a feast day on June twenty second approaching, I just thought uh, we got to get Dr. Wegemer on the program. Uh, uh, Professor Wegemer, uh, welcome to the show. Happy to be with you, Chris. Well, and and just for our listeners, uh, you've just it seems that your entire career is dedicated uh, in, in large part to this, to this great saint, to St. Thomas More. But before we get into uh, to Thomas, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I, this is my 35th year of teaching at the University of Dallas, and I started my study of Thomas More as an undergraduate. I then went on to do a master's in political theory and then jumped into the English literature area but have always kept my interest in classical and Renaissance thinkers like Thomas More. And, and you're teaching in the English department at uh, University of Dallas, is that right? That's correct. And, and is, is there a Catholic studies department at, at U Dallas? Well, the University of Dallas actually is a diocesan university, and we have a wonderful theology department and an integrated curriculum. So every student takes uh, his own theology and philosophy. Well, that's, that's wonderful. And many of the listeners in the Real Presence Radio broadcast area will be familiar with um, perhaps similar, um, you know, programs with Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas, of course, University of Mary up in Bismarck. Um, so just a wonderful curriculum. And, uh, and uh, for, for me, especially as a law student, to kind of jump in and, and have some of that uh, more well-rounded formation was, was great. Um, you know, one of the occasions for, for us connecting, not only with this great feast day, but recently um, you edited and, and very recently published a new work called The Essential Works of Thomas More, if I remember right, is maybe Yale University of, uh, Press. 
Can you tell us a little okay. bit about, about that uh, new work, what it is, and, and why now? Well, it's designed to be a volume set next to your complete Shakespeare. It's the same size. It's 1,500 pages. It has all 20 of Thomas More's books. It has his 300, it has a, a good selection of his 300 poems, his letters, and it also gives the full range of his writings from the first to the last, from history to philosophy to theology. Uh, it's the first collection since 1557 in one volume that gives you a sense of the whole different works. And um, so it's not, not his complete collected works, but really just some real thought put into how do we distill what is essential about more into one volume? Is that right? We actually have the complete works in this volume and in, in the companion website, org. In fact, we have a hundred more letters than the complete works has because the quote complete works was never complete. I see. And I, and I think you, when you said the website, you cut out. Can you tell us that website uh, one more time for those listeners that want to uh, check it out? Essentialworks.com. Uh, essentialworks.org. Essential, uh, essentialworks.org. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I just made a mistake. It's essentialmore. <laughs> the essentialmore.org. Essentialmore.org. And I'll, uh, I'm going to put that link uh, into the show notes when this goes up on sdcatholicconference.org also on the Catholic Conference website. Um, well, it's, it's really exciting. And as, as a student, I got to explore not all of his works, but a number of them. And, and really just, um, it, was through his, it was through his writing. Not only was he a great saint and statesman of his own day, but he was a prolific writer. He, he wrote a lot. So um, for me, there, that was the occasion to actually fall in love with this just amazing man. Can, can we... Now let's just like jump in and talk about his his life a little bit, and it's it's too much. This is a you know a half hour program, but so we we can't talk about everything. But can you maybe just give us an overview of his life, um, you know, his family life, uh, his spiritual life, and his life as a public servant? He he was a citizen of London at a time of great change a person much like our own time. And the interest of his life is how he prepares himself for the great enterprises that he's gifted with later. Uh, he, his father is a businessman turned lawyer, local, Thomas More. Uh, his father becomes a chief judge. Uh, he becomes a lawyer for the business sector of London. They elect him to be the undersheriff or the, you would say the, the judge who takes all cases uh, of the city. He does that for 10 years. Uh, he's a much beloved citizen. Uh, he marries and has four children. Uh, he adopts three. His first wife dies. Uh, and then he does join the king's service uh, at a time when the king has set a policy of peace and justice. He works for the king for 15 years, rises to the highest office of the land, and then the famous controversy of church-state relations uh, where the king wishes to be, make himself the head of, of the church. Uh, Moore is silent and refuses to support that, and he is eventually executed. You know, and I think that, that his execution, his martyrdom, is what so many of us know first. If we don't know much about him, it's kind of the first thing that comes to our mind 
But when he was, he was proclaimed um, patron of statesmen in 2000 by uh, St. John Paul II, uh, John Paul said, said this. I want to just share this quote real quick uh, from John Paul, uh, speaking about more. Quote, his sanctity shone forth in his martyrdom, but it had been prepared by an entire life of work devoted to God and neighbor. You, you agree with that? Absolutely. And he was an exemplary citizen uh, from his youth. Uh, he became the best friend of Erasmus. He convinced Erasmus to take up a serious study of Greek and to take on what became a, a very scholarly project for, for Erasmus for the rest of his life. And, and Erasmus, uh, just briefly, Erasmus is kind of a, a great humanistic scholar living in continental Europe. Is that, do I remember right? He is the best published and best spoken of uh, scholar in, in Europe at that time. And he edits the church fathers and the classical authors together. This was Moore's dream as well as Erasmus's of enriching the church and politics by going back to the roots of justice. What really does make justice and charity? And this is what Moore uh, helps many people inspires many people to do. Erasmus says he is born for friendship, that he's a model of a friend. And this also comes through in his life and his writings, to care for his family. His family was very well known throughout Europe because he had some of the best educated daughters in Europe. He hired Oxford students to make sure that his daughters could get the same education that his son got. And, and which is, and just to make clear too, that was unusual for that time, wasn't it? For, for family to educate, yeah. Yeah, to educate uh, the daughters of a family like the sons. Um, I, I, I seem to recall an anecdote of, of even his daughter, Meg, Margaret, winning, may, maybe being awarded a, a prize or a coin from, I don't know if it was a cardinal or somebody just so impressed with her grasp of uh, uh, Latin. Is that right? Cardinal. Cardinal Pohl, yes, a, a, a very accomplished scholar. Uh, and uh, Margaret, his oldest daughter, actually published a book before she was 24. Uh, and this was unheard of as well. Uh, his, his family life was exemplary. In fact, Rasmus says it sets a new standard for educated families, that they would have to educate their daughters like Thomas More hmm. because of the the music of the home, the happiness of the children, and just the standard that they had set. Well, and that's one of the things I recall from my studies, too, is just that the home life of Thomas seemed to be a real incubator for holiness, that it was a place of hospitality and warmth and festivity. There's this famous uh, Hans Holbein. I think it's the Holbein. Uh, there was a, there's a sketch, but also, the, yeah, but they're all together in the room. And one of the things that, um, that it, I can't remember if it's in the painting or if I just remember this about his life, but if there's an animal in the painting, maybe. Oh, the family monkey. Yes, that he yeah. just loved to, that he had this desire to delight his children even. And so he'd buy them little gifts and one of the gifts was a monkey. And um, um, so, you know, we can't, we're totally wrong if we have this picture of like sort of this austere, person who is just sort of glumly marching to his death. No, this was a life of joy that pervaded not only, but his family too was like a place of welcome and warmth 
and other people received this hospitality, even the man who would ultimately, uh, you know, the king, um, was, was a frequent guest um, there. Well, in his earliest works, Moore quotes the, the biblical saying, God loves a cheerful giver. Mm. Quotes that throughout his life, even in the tower. And even in the tower, when he's in prison and has lost everything, uh, he tells Margaret that he sees God as treating him like a special child. Mm. A child. And he does some of his best work in the tower. He writes his two masterpieces in the tower. So he has this clear sense that God is in charge always, even when things look, look the worst. And this, too, is evident throughout his life. One of the reasons we wanted to put in as many of his letters as possible is that it's a letter that gives you the direct sense of what a person is. Now, we have a letter he wrote on the spot when his house has burned down. <laughs> um, and he writes to his, his, his wife. He says, well, bring the whole family to church to thank God for what he's given. And even in adversity, we have to see his will. Yes. yes. And this is the fire out at Chelsea. Correct. Yeah. And, and just for our listeners, some of our listeners, especially in a rural area, might appreciate this, that he, at a certain point, moved outside of the city of London and bought a farm. And so lived on That's a right. little 30-acre th farm which I, I used to practice law in rural Minnesota. We had a little 30-acre farm, and so I just felt the real kinship there. But yeah, that story is just so beautiful of, of confidence, in, confidence in God, God's love, God's will, even amidst great, great difficulty. You mentioned, Professor, you mentioned the tower, which of course is the Tower of London where he was imprisoned um, in the time before uh, his execution on July 6th, 1535. It's actually Bishop Fisher who was executed on June 22nd, um, and they share the feast day on June 22nd. But can you, can you just sketch out for us, because I think sometimes we have a very generalized sense of what led to his execution, but can you help us understand why it is that he actually was executed and, and his own level of, his own will in this, like what it is that the decisions he's making as the tension, as the temperature is being turned up, so to speak. Henry VIII wanted to marry someone else than Catherine. He said their marriage was illegitimate um, and he wanted to get it annulled. Um, Moore said, well, that's something that the church has to decide. And he was forced to give his opinion on the marriage, and he took a long time to study it with Henry's own scholars. He told Henry in private what he believed. Uh, Henry went ahead. The only annulment or a divorce was to uh, take over the reins of the church himself. Uh, he appointed a, a bishop who would do, be willing to do that in England. Uh, Moore refused to go along. Uh, Moore said at his trial, he does open his mind at his trial. As a good lawyer, he keeps his silence, uh, a silence that Cromwell would say will bellow throughout Europe. Uh, everyone knew why he was opposed. Uh, and then Moore eventually was, uh, was imprisoned. Now, it's, a, it's an interesting story. There are 
chapter upon chapter of the subtleties of Moore's mind. And putting together these 1,500 pages of his writings, which span uh, spiritual writings at every stage, uh, but also his efforts at the highest level to help change a warrior culture and a tyrannical mindset of kings. Uh, rule by parliament. His earliest writings point out the weakness of hereditary monarchy. And he points, in fact, he even introduces into the uh, English culture the Latin vocabulary of the ancient Roman Republic. Hmm. Uh, and although he is called the patron of statesmen, the word statesman didn't exist yet. His term was a Latin term that meant leading citizen. And he was convinced about the importance that every person has in self-government and, and in terms of a government that has an educated population as the only way to really achieve prosperity and peace in England. It's a fascinating story. And is it fair to say that this conception of a leading citizen is, is revolutionary insofar as there's something different between a citizen and a subject? It's revolutionary for warrior monarchy. Sure. Uh, but it's understood in ancient Greece that had a democracy, and it was understood in ancient Rome that had a republic uh, of more, under, more study, studied both. He learns Greek after law school. Hmm. We can go back to the sources and understand more deeply what might be real solutions to his own cultural problems, the problems his culture has. This too is, I think, why Moore has such great importance and why a statesman like St. John Paul II would want him to be known by all of us in much greater detail because Moore prepared himself extraordinarily well to lead well. One of the most important parts of his education for his children was precisely to have a calm soul, virtuous. He, put, he writes, put virtue in the first place, learning in the second. Mm. Even children were very bright. Uh, but, but he saw that if, unless you have a good character, you're going to see things in a distorted way. Yes, and, and I recall even reading from... Um... I think the, the homily of his, at his canonization mass that, that he prayed even the canonical hours, like the Liturgy of the Hours, which is not obligatory for, for lay people, obviously, but, but just a real pursuit of, of, of the interior life. Um, he started every day with prayer in the mass and with study. He studied every morning. He hmm. prayed every morning. You know, maybe just um, there's a, a I want to share a quotation here from uh, G.K. Chesterton, who many of our listeners may be familiar with as sort of a great English essayist, a convert to Catholicism, uh, living and writing um, about 100 years ago, um, a little less. This is a, a quotation from 1929, which is six years before he was before Moore was canonized. Um, he had been beatified in, I think, the 1870s by Pope Leo XIII, but um, so canonization came later, but this is a quotation from Chesterton. Quote, 
Blessed Thomas More is more important at this moment that, than at any moment since his death, even perhaps the great moment of his dying, but he is not quite so important as he will be in about 100 years' time, end quote. That was written in 1929. Here we are, not quite 100 years later, but why do you think Chesterton said that? Chesterton had a great sense of history. He also said that Moore represented a turning point in the history of liberty. As a historian, he realized things take time. And Moore understood this. This is one reason he could have such calm and apparently losing everything. Because he was thinking 100 years ahead. Most of us have to think in terms of generations after our own, because many cultural problems are not going to be solved in our own time. But this is precisely why a Christian has so much to offer. The perspective of eternity, and this lifetime is going to be short. I need to do the best I can under the conditions I have. Uh, One of my favorite quotes of Moore is his, um, you could say, Maxim for success in politics, making things as little bad as possible. (laughs) Uh, That's a very wise, experienced person. We can't go for perfection or utopia in this world. And Moore, uh, Chesterton being a realist, saw in Moore a realist. And Chesterton, understanding, also realized that, for instance, the role of the lay person needed to be clarified in the church. The role of a Christian in society needed to be clarified in secular terms. And this is where Moore is a model. He was a leader in the secular world. He was a leader in the life of his church because he had a life of integrity himself. That's probably the word that would be one of the four or five that I would give to encapsulate Moore as a human being, a man of integrity. His words and his thought were one with his actions, and he struggled to achieve that. I mean, most people, the other word that most people would use for Moore was courage, but Moore, you can see in his tower letters, his prison letters, always considered himself a fearful man. And he fought to be courageous easily for him. And the same with integrity. He worked hard. He prayed hard. He thought hard. He wrote in order to clarify ideas and issues. And here again, this is what any modern professional, any modern parent needs to do this combination of a life of study, a life of hard work, and and a realistic assessment of what Christian charity can bring in an imperfect world that will be filled always with injustice and with difficulties. Well, and and I I remember too from uh, St. John Paul II's homily or address um, when he's proclaiming him patron of statesmen, uh, or as Moore would say, a leading citizen, um, that he, he cites his own exhortation, uh, Christi Fidelis Laici, which is this exhortation to the Christian lay faithful. So John Paul agrees that Moore is really uh, leading the way, showing us how to live the lay vocation. And I think 
um, John Paul also discusses this integrity of this sort of this unity of faith and life, which um, I think one of the the council Second Vatican Council documents may, may refer to as sort of the great drama of our time is this separation for Christians between faith and life, and Moore's life is just this witness of um, the struggle um, in in a fallen world as as a fallen person to bringing these two in, into perfect perfect in integrity. The other um, thing that comes to mind as you're speaking is, is something that I just remember Dr. Boyle really bringing into the, the graduate course I took on more, which is this virtue of prudence, um, which is so, you know, for, um, we've got, let's see, about three minutes remaining here, but this virtue of prudence being just so preeminent for people that are, that are in the world, so to speak. I talk about it with politicians um, all, all the time. You know, there's one thing we haven't gotten to yet that it, it just struck me as I was preparing. It was something that is maybe a contemporary issue that I wanted to just bring up. Um, so in our couple minutes left, could we talk a little bit about free speech and taking a step back to um, Thomas's first foray into public life in the House of Commons can you tell us the story of, of, of his defense of, of free speech? Well, he was asked to be the Speaker of the House of Commons, and uh, he gave a speech, uh, first saying that he didn't think he was that well qualified for it. But then the second part of the speech was the request for free speech in Parliament. It is the first written speech we have in the Western world which gives a defense of why it's crucial. And interestingly, it's related to the point you just brought up of prudence. Look, you have brought people from around the country interested in the common good. They need freedom to speak about what they think. And, and this is a, a philosophic issue. No one sees the whole practical truth in its details, completely right. We need one another in conversation. You know, dialectic, it comes from dialogue, uh, and we all need to dialogue in order to discover the truth in a changing world with lots of variables. So Moore saw this as essential for a good government and for justice. And I think that's something that we as Americans can really just like, as American Catholics especially, can really latch onto because this is uh, speech, of course, is one of our preeminent um, civil rights. Uh, first, uh, the First Amendment to our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, right up there with uh, freedom of religion. And I've shared this with a number of people in political life and elsewhere, um, that it's really a Catholic articulation of free speech is the first defense we have. Um, so it's, 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 I think, an important story to tell. Um, unfortunately, I could just keep talking for hours but uh, it's time to bring it to a close. Uh, if you've been listening, I've been joined by Professor Gerard Wegemer, an expert in St. Thomas More. Professor, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, thank you, Chris. Well, and, and continuing uh, with the theme, we're gonna pick up again uh, next week. The next episode, I'm gonna be joined by uh, Professor John Schaff, known to many of our listeners uh, living uh, in South Dakota as Professor of Political Science at Northern State University. Um, teaches uh, some introductory courses and continuing the theme of more one of one of a, a person that more was really steeped in St. Augustine and that's who I'm going to be talking about with 
at Professor Shop. So until next week.